0: Please settle in the moment and know the one who hears the words. It's called the one, or we've used the word the one, but if you look, it may not be something. This is a poem by Rainer Maria Wilke called A Walk. My eyes already touch the sunny hill going far ahead of the road I have begun. So we are grasped by what we cannot grasp. It has its inner light, even from a distance, and changes us, even if we do not reach it, into something else, which hardly sensing it, we already are. A gesture waves us on, answering our own wave. But what we feel is the wind in our faces. So our experience touches us like the wind on our cheek. We're touched, we're known by, we know... We're enveloped in this multi-dimensional, very real world that we live, and that is us. This momentary totality of what we are is that's this is uh, where we are all together. Just now, so I'd like to ask you each of you to inquire if you're willing. If you're not, it's fine to. What in this very moment is the highest intention that you have? Or you feel, or you're drawn to? I wonder if anyone would be willing to say, like a few people, just for each other to hear. Service. Service. Kindness. Be kind. Kindness. Being kind. Let go into being. Let go into being. To be like the sky. To be like the sky. Inner peace. Inner peace. What? Freedom of suffering. Freedom of suffering. Thank you, everyone who spoke and those who listened, those who have and held their intention quietly. In a sense, it's all the same intention expressed in different and varying ways. I'd say my own intention is to stay connected while I speak and to serve you with a talk about that moves from compassion uh, into wisdom and ending up in equanimity. We'll see how far we get. I'll start off with a, my little part of it with a New Yorker cartoon where there's this person approaching the podium who's like their clothes are in a big mess and they're sort of like dirty and their hair is kind of funny. And there's someone standing there saying about to introduce them saying, our next speaker has looked deeply into the abyss and would like to say a few words. <laughs> so we'll see during this retreat as i sit here with everybody um especially in the early morning sittings and the late night my mind has been playing around a um, time in my life when i was pretty young and living in latin america and my playmates the only um kids on the street where I lived that I could play with were all these boys, and we played guns together. And I was, I think, a little younger than they were. They were two uh, Persian brothers, were my friends, and I had a gun and they had guns. And we would run around the yard sneaking up on each other and shooting each other. And I could go up to one of them and get him, like, right there in the head and say, bang, you're dead. And they would say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm only wounded. Bang, you're dead. And and you have to die because you're a girl. (laughs) And I'd say, I'm only wounded. No, you're dead, they would say. Or if we had to choose a bad guy and a sheriff, I always had to be the bad guy also because I was a girl. And um, it kind of led to not wanting to be a girl in a way. You know, a sense of real frustration and humiliation and really being defeated, Um, some rage. I did discover that I was smarter than they were in some respects, like they thought the tall skinny glass of lemonade was bigger than the short fat one, and I knew the short fat one was bigger. (laughs) 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 So I'd say, go ahead, have that one. (laughs) I had my secret triumphs. (laughs) but this kind of uh, kind of disconnection from, you know, or a sense of identity kind of growing around a sense of humiliation, I think, is something that maybe we all have in our own way in our own life sort of the way my young mind defended itself by saying, well, if girls have to die then I'm not going to be one, you know and in part This kind of tomboyness was an expression of something like sort of transgender that I feel. Like, I liked body surfing and running around in the mountains, and I had a scorpion in a jar that I thought was really neat, like powerful thing, you know, not a girlish kind of thing. (laughs) And I was very particular about what kinds of clothes I wore. I couldn't look completely like a boy, but I didn't really want to have, like, go over to Kathy Binder's house and put stuff in our hair. I thought that was really dumb. (laughs) the thing that remained was a sense of uh, maybe not really being able to defend myself that then got layered onto with other life experiences and that only like much later in my life like around this time now am I starting to be able to visit that place where it feels like something some young part of me actually died in a way um And to be willing to kind of go there and kind of get her and find that place. Ooh, I didn't expect this to happen. (laughs) Okay, just a second. Later on in this same lifetime, about eight years later, this was a life in, you know, my life in Latin America, my historical life. I remember... um, being in the car with my parents and driving to and from the airport often through not the nicest part of town, where I would also see like very young children of my age and size and without clothes sometimes, you know, like without any clothes or without any shoes. Like the girls were normally given a dress and the boys were normally like not given anything in some places in Colombia where I used to live. And I felt so tremendously at fault somehow for not being able to do anything about it that um, I could so easily see that it was just a random thing that made me be sitting behind glass in a car and then being like dancing on a little rubbish heap or something. I felt I didn't really belong in that place. And I was also... uh, a representative of something unwanted, like a representative of oppression to other people, which I really deeply did not want to be. And then I came back to the United States to come to college and felt a great foreigner in Texas. I thought Texas would be really close to Mexico and I could escape to Mexico. Um, But I was, you know, I was a year young for college and i didn't really have the courage to run into mexico all by myself i realized i was defeated there too i thought i got there and i just could barely even you know stay afloat where i didn't understand barely people talking like this and that, and i couldn't i didn't know how to that's how it sounded to me i'm sorry it, it just had a twang to it that i had to took a while to understand and people having watched all the same tv shows and stuff when they were growing up i hadn't seen like any of that. Um, So I give this as a sense of where the path begins and what kind of mending can happen and knowing that I'm certainly not the only person in this room who knows these feelings, who knows what it feels like to be erased or have your heart broken or not be able to really feel effective in helping or even helping yourself. I've been reading um, the Buddha's life and much moved by his sense of heartbreak, which is reflected in this metta-sutta here, when he says, um, it's written by him probably, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, which was sort of his situation. His mother died a week after giving birth to him, a week after he'd bonded with her smell and her sound and her body and um, then lost her. And being a human being and sensitive and intelligent, I am sure that he thought what it meant that her life was given uh, for his life and what a deep question that must have been and what a sense of her love and her loss was not only there in him, but also in his mother's sister who raised him, who took care of him and probably saw her sister reflected in this child. And the disquiet, the deep disquiet about himself and, you know, what to do about all this, that must have been partly what impelled him, made him unable to just settle for like the regular marriage and relationship that he had with a child. Adding to that what I sense as I think about him and what kind of person he was, the sense that he was to be responsible for this sort of uh, kind of tribal area or small part of India, that to be responsible for people and to see that they were aging and getting sick and dying and that you know no politician can distribute enough rice to protect other beings from these forces and it was with this disquiet that he set forth to seek another kind of answer another kind of wise response to the ultimate questions of this life they're not just someone else's questions, they're ours as well. My um, little niece and I and my sister spent some time together on Sunday and we were walking into Bloomingdale's or somewhere in downtown San Francisco where there's a big mall and we went in this doorway and she suddenly like started having this big tantrum and crying and we said, you know, Alma, Alma, what's wrong with you? And she said, there was a homeless man opening the door for us, the other door and we went in the door and he was smiling and I smiled back at him and we came in this door. And I wanna go back through the door that he was opening for us, I'd like to be with him and give him a dollar. And I'm sure that she was thinking of her own family at home in Guatemala and really identifying with that situation and wanting to help where she could She's ten, you know. This is like Jack's talk last night, but they're so holes in our hearts and holes in reality, and what do we do to make it better? You know what can we how can we respond? like we respond to the human being who's opening a door, and we give that person a dollar, and we see them as a as a person, not as a thing or not as a object of derision and scorn, being worthy of respect. We also are invited by this Buddhist path to look deeper into life than our roles or our superficial habits, our individuality, our relative identities, to take a kind of universal responsibility for how we live and how we use this life. Now the Buddha's message and the way that he used his life is still alive and vibrating for us here and now. Trudy pointed out the other day she was qu- trying to fit this into her talk and I was behind her with a little like crumb catching and sweeping thing where she said he didn't appoint a successor. So it's, he's handing it, attempting to hand his wisdom directly to each person, not not through an appointed leader. That's sort of the message that it's really for us. When I think of it like that, the, the distance doesn't seem so long or so far, especially when we can really feel his heartbeat, how he took that sense of his mother's love and meant it that we can universalize that and not despise any being in any state and to care that way through our personal life personal attachments and losses to open to something where all beings are encompassed not even just people but also birds and animals and that stuff it really just in that is a sense of liberation for us there was one of the questions for the Q&A the other day, Um, some of the unanswered ones, there was a stack that remained in the office and one of them said, is it really okay to sit on our butts and do nothing? (laughs) Well, it's kind of a yes and no. For now, not doing anything, but later to share what we know and share what we've learned. So last night, Jack spoke of great compassion And tonight I hope to sort of touch a little on the wisdom process that compassion wants to respond, maybe, and we'll say in some kind of attempted cut-and-dried way that compassion wants to respond. And awareness or wisdom or deep knowing uh, knows how, knows what's possible, what's skillful, that the path is through the heart and through this moment and through our life to live our life as best expression we can. Winnie's talk also I loved, and when she said taking that step of faith to investigate reality, that that's, or this is the path that the Buddha offers is right through our experience to discover like what would be our correct or our most enlightened intuitive response to the challenges of life or to what life is. To see what's real is maybe our first response here to cultivate an understanding and a truthful abiding in the moment, which takes a great deal of love and compassion, gentleness, but also clear seeing. It's kind of an invitation to a scientific investigation to see whether what we believe is true or false, whether it's true that because you're a girl you always have to die. Um, Turns out not to be so true. Orson Welles, you may know, in uh, 1938, read a short novel over the radio which had to do with a Martian invasion and He made it like a parody of a newscast. And as it was the run-up to World War II, this was this 40-minute newscast about how these alien spaceships were attacking the world. And there was a great deal of panic and tension, especially in the town called Concrete, Washington, where there happened to be an electrical blackout at the same time. So people really got scared that it was actually happening. (laughs) And only later did they find out that their belief or their faith in the radio had been misplaced their faith in this kind of mock newscast and just to drop into the beginning of the kind of uh, certain lines along which our investigation might proceed this way that our mind sometimes talks to us do we have to believe it or not We could believe that there are Martians on Mars and that the moon is made of green cheese. We could even form a religion about it. But if we actually send someone to the moon, we'll probably find out it's made out of rocks instead. So if we look at our own experience or actually at the way the world is made up, we might discover that there's no man in the moon in our heart, that there's not an actual, truly abiding, fixed, self in here. And that this is liberating um, is part of what the Buddha spoke of as wisdom. And I'd like to try to illustrate how this works in the next phase of this talk. To begin with, science has discovered, um, through research that some of you know this, the default network of our mind, what it does when we leave it alone. I wonder if you all can vouch for this as accurate is that it weaves a story. It's telling stories to itself about me most of the time. There's time travel that it also does, going back and forth to past and future. And then there's a kind of like, how am I doing thing? And does anybody love me? And how am I compared to other people? And yada, yada, yada. Does anybody (laughs) confirm (laughs) that this is what it does (laughs) when you look in there? One of the issues is that this, if this me doesn't actually exist and it always needs to be recreated, then it will be based on a sense of something that isn't really valid, it's not real. So the desperation with which it clings to its story might be because it's sort of an emperor's new clothes thing that it's not quite as solid as we take it to be. Science certainly, as Jack had said, doesn't believe that there's a me in here. Like we might feel like there's somebody like right behind our eyes that's controlling everything, kind of someone in the cockpit that's driving and looking from behind here. But actually when we remember or perceive anything, there's our whole body network of nervous kind of excitement is involved. Memory, perception um, comes together to form a kind of internal image memories also are put together each time. We feel like they're stored away in a drawer and they kind of pop into being fully formed. But they're not. They're a kind of a composite thing, arising and passing away again and again like they're all in I feel like they're stored in little places in my head is how I visualize it and then they form and dissolve. It's been shown that if you are able to remember something like a past difficult experience in a space where you feel safe or loved or accepted, that when it goes back into storage again, it's way less charged or it carries with it some of that sense of acceptance, which I think is part of how psychotherapy or being listened to by a friend works or also a little bit about how we make this container, this space of love and kindness and acceptance that supports us all here, that actually is part of our lineage from coming from the Buddha's time. So we start to take apart our experience and actually a sense of dismantling is important. It's offered as a wonderful tool and especially in this Vipassana practice to begin to look at the components and composite experience when our self seems to come together. And that way we understand How it operates, examining the arising and passing away of our experience in the moment, moment to moment. And I know from speaking with you that many of you are really able to see this and how you might be caught in a story or becoming very possessive about some aspect of your room or your job, yogi job, a ripe Area for the sense of great accomplishment and doing it right, or um, those evildoers who are not um, doing certain things correctly, or um, many, many, many things to investigate about how the self arises and passes away in relationship to our work. How we relate to the arising and passing of reality at the sense stores. But what we do in the beginning, especially, is to place a close, close attention to experience in the body. And as we present it in order, I feel like it just subtracts energy out of that default network of I and me and mine and stories that we're habitually living in. It kind of takes our attention and energy and puts it somewhere else. The walking meditation, we were encouraged to look at impermanence, like each step where is our walking meditation of this morning or this afternoon? Where is it gone? What happened to all those steps and moments? Or paying attention to the breath. It actually gives us a chance to have basic intimacy with what is, on present evidence, as some teachers say. Breath and body are good friends for our dismantling process because they happen only in this moment. They're really faithful to the here and nowness of reality. Here's a little um, sort of practice description by a woman named Jeanne de Salzmann, who's a Gurdjieff practitioner. In the moment I'm deeply conscious of it, I sense my breathing has a deep importance as if it were the very act of living. I feel it as a living movement. The movement of the one life in which I'm included. I cannot hold myself apart observing from the outside nor fix and stop the movement appropriating it for myself. I let go and in losing myself, I find myself. I submit to this movement in which form is created and immediately swept away as soon as it appears. I live in my breathing beautifully described and likely to be something that all of us have felt at some time or another. As we attempt to place our attention on breath or on body or on walking, what we start to notice is that it doesn't stay. It doesn't stay there. We notice distraction. And again, to help us out with a scientific study, It's been shown by, you know, a study that I could cite, that people are happily, uh, happier when they're actually doing the ironing than when they're ironing and fantasizing about being in Tahiti. Um, That actually there's something about the fantasy life of our mind that is not ultimately nourishing for our being. You might see how this is. If anyone's had a vipassana romance or fallen in love with another person on retreat and seen the waves of desire and imaginary fulfillment and how kind of awfully tiresome it can become after a while, <laughs> it seems like it's going to be so sweet to slide into it. And then all of a sudden, since it's not really happening, it's kind of like depleting instead um, And amazing how the mind can rise to that occasion again and again and again and again. It's kind of humbling. So as we study and harvest closer attention into the body, sometimes sensing the resonance of our mental activity in the body, we start to see more dimensions to what's going on. I'd just like to suggest that for your practice as a... um, goes along that this kind of assumption or autopilot thing also will say I am seeing or say for me right now, I'll have, have a sense of like I am talking. And it helps me sometimes to say kind of something like this body-mind process is talking, not me. It fits and it kind of lets my attention drop into a different place. So my knee and my hand and and my head are reinforced by language as being owned by somebody. But if you actually spend some time and study the actuality of this hand or this body, the sense of ownership becomes more tenuous. I mean, it's possible to move it, there's intention and maybe a sense of recognition about it. But the shapes of our fingernails and the lines on our palm come from somewhere beyond our wish or our intention. So try it out, mind-body continuums here resonating together. I have a friend who uh, named Josh who used to be uh, think of himself as a little bit of a playboy and He has a joking thing that he told me, like as a Buddhist he thought if he went to a bar and started talking to women about Buddhist practice and trying to get them to be interested in him, he could start and say, Do you see um, that flower arrangement? And are you the flower arrangement? Is that you? (laughs) And then could bring something closer and say, how about the clothes that you're wearing, are they you? And then bring it in a little closer and say, like, how about your bodacious body, is that you? (laughs) And even closer than that, how about your thoughts, are they you? And I said, Josh, did you ever use that on anyone? He said, no. He said he didn't think it would actually be effective (laughs) to bring someone to that state of catatonic (laughs) non-identification. (laughs) <laughs> lost in that void that I described at the beginning the one who knows you can't really find it so you can uh, try to like, look at your finger and you can actually see your finger and you can see anything like attributes of things that your finger is pointing at but try turning your finger around sometimes See what <laughs> see what that is I did that to a friend and she said I see my finger and I'm like yeah exactly But sometimes it takes a sense of safety and ability to let go of this sense of who we are and where we are I think we all know that like How maybe when in the story that I said about kind of not wanting to be a girl that some innocent part of myself needed for protection to be a certain way you know to sort of wall myself into some other sense of another identity rather than just letting go into sort of the naturalness of my being and that's where I think the Buddha's you know the sense of being able to love and connect is really critical there's a story in the magazine the Sun about a young it was in the voice of a young man and I didn't bring that print out today but he was talking about listening to his father sit in the living room and yell at the radio and talk a, you know sort of talk a kind of mean line about liberals and people of other colors and other persuasions and other types and talking really demonizing much of the world we all know that this can happen no matter what one's politics are i've actually wanted to say that that anyone's politics are welcome here but the sense of creating the other and reinforcing a sense of value for ourselves is something that our mind often does, creating so much pain in this world. So this story is the young man listens to this when he's a boy and somehow he gets a job on a paper route and he collects the papers from a black man, an African-American man who's in the warehouse. And he feels something, goodness, coming from this man. And the man invites him to join a little league team and the boy telling the story isn't able to ask his father about it because he knows his father would find out sort of the diverse composition of the team. So he goes back to the guy, and the guy says, Hey, so did you talk to your dad? And the young man can't answer. So this warehouse man just touched him on the shoulder and said, I understand. He said that he carried that touch through his life as a teaching that there's another way. So the sense can come through anything through touch, through sight, through the mind. The sense that this gentle disidentification and letting down of the walls of what we take to be ourself. It's not only possible, but very beautiful. When I first started to look at sort of some of the knots in my own kind of being, I went to a therapist, um, Jack knows well, who had a sort of like a rough form of therapy. He would sort of, he would actually shove us up against the wall and say mean stuff so that we could revisit feeling overpowered and then we were, supp- we were encouraged to say, tell me no, tell me no and he'd get his hand up against your jaw and push you up against the wall and make you, like, shout and push back and stuff. And mostly I found this a little too intense. I actually started to be scared of him. I didn't want to be in a room with this person. <laughs> I wouldn't let him do his work and then I felt bad, you know, that I wasn't letting him do his work and what's wrong with me, I can never let anyone, like really connect with me and stuff like that. It was quite sad for me and for the person, that other person when I said I couldn't continue. But it's actually been the form that we have here that has enabled these feelings and knowledges of pattern to come to the surface and to be held in loving awareness, even at times when it felt very confusing and very chaotic and very much sort of beyond the edge where I could feel comfortable with what I was experiencing. Often it was just to be like able to be sitting with the teacher or able to be in the room. I remember being given permission to cry at a women's retreat and how luxurious it was to absolutely howl for a long time and have people like cuddle me sort of and hold my hand and just have permission to feel to let it go, to let it out, which is also an invitation here in the hall, should there be the need to feel like crying, you might really be helping someone touch their own heart of compassion, to be able to hold you in their loving awareness as well. What we begin to see over time is that we are able to know and to hold ourselves, to, if we can't completely hold everything that we can hold where we stop, where we're not able anymore, we can say, I can't really do this, and stop there, like hit the wall and lean on that wall a little bit. The practice of just letting be, sometimes it helps to sense the resonance of profound feelings and profound suffering in the body because it kind of gives us another vantage point if we meet it head-on as kind of just, you know, us and it and those two yellow lights that turn out to be the truck and just roll us over, helps to sense into the body. And I believe that tomorrow uh, Pascal will talk a little bit about some of the streams that we can see, like some of the facets that help us kind of look at smaller pieces and start to see the spaces between aspects of suffering so it's not all so stuck together. But for now it's kind of like, I wanna talk about how mindfulness isn't trying to create anything new, isn't trying to go anywhere with it, isn't trying to solidify a self out of our experience or make us better. Just trying to see or just seeing. In the seeing, just the seeing, and the noticing, just the noticing. Sensing the inherent gentleness and wisdom of that, like the ease and simplicity that really has been given to us, that it's just to come here and just to notice what's happening, what's happening in this experience here and now, so that we can be engaged and connected, but not fighting as Achan Suchito says, not glazed over, but not stained by what's going on. And as the mindfulness gets stronger, as I know it has for many of us from time to time, we can sense that, that we can be with the arising and passing of entanglements. And it's like the warmth of our ability to connect and sustain awareness on the body and mind to be able to say it's just like this right now as the buddha said this mind feels very large right now this mind feels tender this mind feels hard or high or low very nonviolent begins to be a place to stand that isn't really a place it's not really something doesn't seem to have a concrete existence. It's more like, almost like a mathematical principle or something. It's not really there, and yet it is. It's very felt. That sense of openness, watching experience arise and dissolve, watching the tangles of our self arise and dissolve, where there's really no difference between responding as what we might call a person as an emotion as a continuum whether it's body or mind that all starts to feel like it's appearing in a space of the open heart quite brilliant, quite vivid play of energies that doesn't discriminate between what we like and what we dislike, is willing to feel all of it that doesn't hold or steal, as Trudy had said earlier on, that doesn't try to, in a certain sense, hold anything for itself, hold anything away from being shared with all that is. So the sense of being erased or humiliated or defeated is something that we can see is just appearing in the heart, and the heart grows large enough to hold very, very deep, pain very very tender joy sparkling openness a sense of everything really being alive it's not like a disconnection between the world out there and sort of me in here it's all sort of a very dynamically changing tapestry of energy The story can sort of dissolve of its own accord. Nothing new fills that space. No new story has to come and fill that space. In that sense, we're quite available for whatever reality or another being would like to bring. A few months ago, I was um, having a little bit of a travail with someone who's important in my life and someone who's a sort of pivotal influential close person and we'd had a misunderstanding and I was kind of upset about it and I was determined that I was going to hold the conversation where I talked about how I had felt which is uh, one of those challenges I think we can all relate to what that feels when you bring something that you feel like isn't necessarily wanted or I was still kind of angry going into the room where I was going to have this conversation I suddenly saw that the dissatisfaction was in my mind. It wasn't like on another person. It was kind of held there in that space of awareness that, yeah, I wasn't happy, but um, the sense of that dynamic knowing, like as Pascal described, like how the sati, how the continuum of previous moments of awareness comes and shows that everything is within experience, I think that's really the heart of what the Buddha described as this practice. Everything is held within experience. And that's liberating. It's liberating to know that within this experiential continuum, nothing is ever solid enough to make us happy. But knowing that is happy. Knowing that is a relief. It's a release. It's like giving it back whatever you thought you had to own, whatever you thought you had to sustain you, why you thought you needed to be solid in that way, not needed. So I invite you to examine if this is so, if the sense of needing to be sort of organized around a sense of I is helpful to you or not. And with this, I want to say that the sense of emptiness and fullness I've been trying to put across allows us to enter into any of our relative identities, and I'm sure that we've all been experiencing many of those. And to celebrate the form that we're taking in each moment and to celebrate our place in this world, no matter who we are. Because I realize that many of us have struggled very hard to feel okay in... Our identity or our sense of who we are. It's very, very important to be settled in that way. Bell Hooks, the radical, um, feminist, lesbian, African American thinker says, if I were really asked to define myself, I wouldn't start with race. I wouldn't start with blackness. I wouldn't start with gender. I wouldn't start with feminism. I would start with stripping down to what fundamentally informs my life, which is that I'm a seeker on the path. I think of feminism, and I think of anti-racist struggles as part of that. But where I stand spiritually is steadfastly on a path about love. So the Buddha really, really meant us to do this, not halfway, all the way, I'll close with saying that refuge in the Buddha just to be able to notice what's happening here and now, that's enough. Let it be as it is and mind will ultimately clarify as it needs in its own time that uh, goal will respond to us as we dismantle, it kind of naturally fills comes back at us refuge in the Dhamma, to trust that this moment's experience is the truth, truth enough for now. Refuge in Sangha, I think, is actually maybe the most expansive, it's trusting each other and what I hope to represent by asking you to speak because I'm really speaking, you know, so much more in this moment, not knowing what resonances are happening, but just to acknowledge that but that we have to express later to create a world where all beings are respected this way, worthy of the death of the Buddha's mother and our own loved ones, worthy of those we love, including ourselves. He really meant that we all have the same nature. We're not separate. Uh, like a hand with lots of fingers sitting here, you know, something like that. Thank you. Um, that's the end. I give that back to you all. Just be quiet for a second, a few minutes. doesn't have to be recorded maybe I'll read this poem again it's just so beautiful to end where we began my eyes already touch the sunny hill going far ahead of the road I have begun so we are grasped by what we cannot grasp it has its inner light even from a distance and changes us even if we never reach it into something else which hardly sensing we already are a gesture waves us on answering our own wave but what we feel is the wind in our faces